And yes, we want to invite you to join us on this Lovolution. You will be getting right now um, a brochure for our Lovolution that will go into a little bit more detail on those 10 opportunities that Patrick just shared with you in this video. And um, I just want to encourage you to really consider this. You're, hopefully you haven't uh, dived, dove. What's the past tense of diving? Dove, that's what I thought. Thank you. Hopefully you haven't dove too deeply into buying Christmas gifts yet. Hopefully you uh, left yourself a little margin there. And we'll consider um, going on this Lovolution with us. If you want to open it up, I just want to quickly highlight the, the 10 opportunities again. The first two are both opportunities uh, in Ethiopia. All of these um, opportunities to give are linked to ministries that we have a close connection with um, uh, here at K2. The first two are in Ethiopia, and I don't know if you're aware, but just this last Thursday, we sent a missions team of 15 people off to Ethiopia for a 10-day missions trip. Um, it was awesome. I was there to see them off at the airport. They were really, really excited. And they just arrived there, I believe, either Friday night for us or Saturday morning. And Patrick um, filmed uh, some footage for us as they got there. And we want to share that with you really quickly. Have a look. All right, so we have 15 people in Ethiopia right now. And just want to encourage you to pray for them over the next 10 days as they are there working with the seminary that, uh, that you can support here through this Lovolution and, and working in those communities um, there over the next 10 days. Um, then three and four are with our partnership with the church in Honduras that we've sent multiple teams to over the last few years. Um, the first one has to do with helping provide school supplies, and, and the second one um, is a meal ministry there that's, that's um, desperately needed there. Number five is an interesting one for me. It's, it's um, to help needy families right here in our communities who are suffering because of the economy. Number six is um, three for five. We've talked about three for five several times over the last few years. Um, Dave and Lene Fueling, who are members here, have started this organization to provide clean drinking water in places in the world where that's not readily available. Number seven is to support the Pregnancy Resource Center and young women who are not prepared for, for pregnancy. Eight is um, supporting the fight against sex trafficking. And um, number nine is another ministry we're closely linked with here in, in West Valley, the Dream Center, where we directly support uh, especially children of refugee families. And number 10 is Holding Out Help, a ministry we're getting more and more involved with that supports uh, especially women and children that escape polygamy. All of, so all of these are very worthwhile causes, ministries that we're closely connected with. And we gave you specific amounts because sometimes it's good to know how much will what I can give do. You're not bound to any of these amounts. We just encourage you to, to pray about it. And we have a form here that you can fill out. And that doesn't have to be today. I actually encourage you maybe not to do that uh, right now unless you're already completely convinced and convicted in an area. But I, I'd encourage you to take this home if, if, or take it to your spouse. And if you have children, sit down with your family and with your kids and look at, at what the needs are and what you would like to do as a family. And we give you three simple steps of what to do. Number one is calculate what were you planning on spending for Christmas? What was going to be your Christmas budget? And we saw what America's Christmas budget is. Was that really $450 billion? Is that what I... That's crazy. Um, but just look at what were you planning to spend on Christmas this year? And then pray about that and say, God, this, is, this was my plan. What's yours? 
What do you want to do with this? And, um, and then, thirdly, be crazy enough to do what he asks you to do. And, uh, and then let's, let's bring it all together and see what God wants to do through this Christmas Lovolution. All right? We chose this title, Lovolution, because we're diving into, in preparation for Christmas, into a study on the, the letter um, of 1 John, written by John the Apostle. He wrote, he wrote the, the Gospel of John, that we find earlier in the New Testament, and then he wrote three short letters, and then later um, Revelation. But we're looking at, at this first of his three letters that he wrote. And um, he tells us in, in that letter, and specifically today we're looking at, at chapter 3, and we're t- calling it a lovolution for Christmas, or Christmas lovolution. He tells us in this chapter 3 why we should invest in something like this. Why should we participate in a Christmas revolution? Why should we put on the table what we were planning on spending for Christmas? And we put this word together, revolution, um, obviously out of two words, love and revolution. That this is really a, a love revolution. And I looked up those words in the dictionary and what they, what they are defined at. And here's two aspects of, of the, the word love. This love is a strong affection for another arising out of kinship or personal ties. So a, a strong affection, love for somebody because you're close to them. And another aspect is unselfish, loyal, and benevolent concern for the good of another. So unselfishness and, and, and a concern for the well-being of somebody other than you. And then a revolution is a dramatic and wide-reaching change in the way something works or in the way you think about something. So it's something that, that has far-reaching consequences because it changes how you think about something and how you work that out. So a lovolution, for us, the definition of a lovolution is that God's affection, His unselfishness, His faithfulness, and His unbelievable generosity to you and me poured into our hearts completely changes the way we think and the way we act and live it out. God's love changes everything. That's the lovolution we're looking about. And today specifically, we're going to look at how God's love produces a dramatic change in the way we view the resources God has made available to you and to me and how we view those in need around us. That's what we will be looking at today in, in 1 John chapter 3. I want to tell you a little bit about how that how I have experienced this, how generosity and, and concern for me by others has affected my, the, my, my heart towards others and towards my resources. When we first moved here three, a little over three years ago now, which is hard to believe, you know, we, we bought a house in Sugar House and started renovating that, and that went way beyond what we thought. You know, those Sugar House homes, you open one wall, and there's one surprise after another. Anyway, I'm sure you've been there. And the budget just got to a point where it was just strung out, and, and it, we had to cut other things. So one of the consequences was we couldn't afford to have a second car, which in Germany would have worked. Here it's, it's a little more difficult. But, so we did with one car, and there was somebody in this congregation uh, who's unfortunately moved away now and, and isn't here anymore who, who kind of felt, man, I want to I help you with that. I want to serve you. And he had a car he didn't need at the time, so he said, you can use this for, for a time until I'll need it back, but I'll let you know. So I got this really cool Lexus SUV that I got to drive for a while. So that was really, really cool. Made a need, and, and it was 
was awesome. I knew that would come to an end, and, and he had mentioned at some point, I'll, I'll have to get that back, and, and I feel really bad about it. And I was like, dude, don't feel bad. Are you kidding me? So one day, I'm, I'm sitting at a coffee shop in Sugar House working on a message for Sunday morning, and he calls me and says, hey, can I meet you? I'm going to have to get that car back. And I said, sure, this is where I am, no problem. So he comes in and sits down, and, and he just felt so bad. I said, yeah, I got to take the car back, man, but, but I want to give you this. And he took a key out with two car keys on it and he says, I bought you this. And he got me a used Toyota 4Runner. And he got me this Toyota 4Runner because it was his favorite car ever. He had owned multiple of them. It was just, he just loved the car. And when he knew he had to take this other car uh, back, he thought, I want to... I want to provide a car for Christian. He didn't have to do that at all. He just wanted to bless me. He was generous. And so he thought, what's the car I love most? If I wanted to get a car for me, I would get a forerunner. And so he said, I'm going to find a good functioning used forerunner for Christian. And he did. It was, it was an ugly big old thing, but it was awesome. It was awesome. It provided, could took, throw my bike in there and ride around. It was, it was unbelievable. But you know what, what I will always remember and treasure more than the actual car was my friend's giddiness and joy over giving me that. I mean, his he was practically bouncing off the walls with excitement and joy to bless me with generosity beyond what I would have ever thought of. And, and he was, it wasn't like, oh man, that was expensive. Take it. He, he was just excited and joyful. And it, I mean, it taught me so many lessons and blessed me in so many ways. And it, it gave me a whole new appreciation for what I have and, and set me free to a degree to be more generous with, with what I had, just experiencing him putting that into action and the joy that he had. And it led me later to be free to give that car about a year and a half later to somebody else who I felt needed it more and then it broke down two miles from my house when he picked it up, the guy I gave it to. So that was, but the thought counted, right? And the only reason why I was free to do that was because I had seen it in action and the joy that he had and then the joy I could share in, in giving it away. As a church, we've experienced this kind of generosity. When, when Dave and, and the gang moved here from, from Detroit and they were looking for a place to plant here in Sugar House, and they couldn't find a place to meet. They got, all of a sudden got connected with The Rock, you know, the church that meets in this room here on, on Saturday nights. And, you know, if you've been around churches and, and around pastors, you'd be surprised, and, or maybe you wouldn't be surprised, to learn that there's, there can be quite a bit of competition and envy between churches. Uh, I've seen it all over the place where a church moves into a neighborhood, there's another church and people get really territorial and you're going to attract my people and, and, and it can get really messy, which is kind of weird in the church, but it, it happens all over the place. So Dave got in, got in contact with the leadership of The Rock and they said, man, you're coming to Salt Lake City to plant a church? That is awesome. You need a place? You want to plant right here in our backyard? Awesome. Why don't you use our building to do that? And I'm just saying, talking to other pastors around the country, that's virtually unheard of. That's almost completely unheard of, that somebody would be so open with their resources and, 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 and share and be generous and invite somebody into their backyard to plant a church. Unbelievable generosity. And the blessing that, that, that we as a church um, received from that and the relationship we have with the rock of real unity is just amazing. And now we are in a position to reciprocate that to a new church plant. Two guys from Florida that just moved to Sugar House who are now meeting Sunday night 
nights in our white box so that they can plan and do what God calls them to do. It's just, it's a beautiful thing to receive generously and to be able to let that flow over into other people and other people's lives. So before we go into the passage in John chapter 3 that specifically addresses that issue, I want to set up this whole series called Lovolution with the first three verses of John, 1 John chapter 1, where he basically sets up and sets the stage and foundation for everything else that he talks about in the rest of this letter. So if you would with me, let's open up 1 John, towards the very end of the New Testament, 1 John chapter 1, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 3. This is what John writes. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you that we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make your joy complete. Let me pray before we dive into this. Lord, I thank you so much for this beautiful day. Thanks for the opportunity we have to be here, to have the freedom to get together like this and, and enjoy each other's company, to enjoy your word and to hear from you. And Lord, I, I just want to lay this morning before you. You know, you know my notes and you know they're too long. I feel like I have more, more, to, more to say than I can. And so I just pray, Lord, that you would lead, that this wouldn't be my thoughts here, but that you would speak to us about what you're trying to tell us in this letter that John wrote. So let us pray that you would have your way this morning and that you would speak into our hearts. And I pray that you would prepare our hearts because some of the things I think you're telling us in this chapter are really hard to hear and even harder to put into practice. So I just pray that you would prepare our hearts for what you want to say. In Jesus' name, amen. So John here describes Jesus and his time, his experience with Jesus. He says, that which was from the beginning. He's referring to Jesus. And then later on, he calls him the word of life. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. The word of life is referring back to Jesus. The word of God usually refers to the Bible. The Bible is the written revelation of who God is. God chose to give us the Old Testament and then the New Testament to reveal himself to us, to tell us, this is who I am. This is me, God. And then Jesus came in the New Testament, and he's often referred to as the living word because he also came to reveal who God is, but he did it in flesh and blood. He was the living revelation of God. And so what John is saying here is, let me tell you about Jesus. Let me tell you, Jesus was real because I was there. I've been there. I've done that. Didn't get the t-shirt, but I was with him and I saw what he did. I heard what he said. I touched him. He was real. Believe it. He was real. And then he goes on and he repeats it. The life appeared. We have seen it and testified to it. We proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. So he says, not just was I with him. I saw him. I learned from him. I heard. I observed what he did. But he's been eternal. So what he's saying is, Jesus, the one I was with, is God. He was with the Father, and he's back with the Father. And then he goes, so I'm telling you all this. He kind of repeats himself. He says, we say this so that I'm telling you about Jesus, about who he is, where he came from, who he was, what he did. And I'm telling you this so that you could have fellowship with us. 
And the fellowship we enjoy as, as ones who accepted Jesus as who he was and have received his love and his forgiveness and his, his faithfulness and generosity, we have fellowship with each other, but we have that fellowship with God and with his son, Jesus. And then he says, I'm telling you all this to make your joy complete. What he's telling us is, I've experienced Jesus. I experienced him in his flesh. I experienced him in his life. And I'm still experiencing him now because I have fellowship with him and with the Father. And I have fellowship with others who know him. And he's inviting us into that fellowship so that our joy can be complete. He says this fellowship can only come through Jesus. And you know, at the very heart of Jesus' mission on earth was to restore your and my fellowship with the Father that was broken when sin came into the world. When Adam and Eve decided to, to act differently, to act apart from God's will, which we all do, a separation occurred. The fellowship that God intended for him to have with you and me got broken. It was, it was unbridgeable for you and me to bridge that gap that, that occurred at that time. And so Jesus came to restore that fellowship so that you and I can be back in a fellowship with God. But another thing that happened when our fellowship with God was broken, it created an immediate inner turmoil and conflict in us as humans. It immediately created guilt and shame, and guilt and shame will always lead to a lack of truth, authenticity, and hiding, and blaming. And that's exactly what it led to with Adam and Eve. Immediately when that separation occurred, Adam and Eve started feeling shame, guilt. They stopped being authentic and real. They started blaming each other. All that to say that the state of our relationship with God, the state of our fellowship with him, immediately affects our relationships with each other because it brings a deep turmoil into our being of guilt and shame. And that's what Jesus came to restore. And once that is restored, those of us who have been restored into that fellowship with God, we can have a fellowship with each other that is nothing short of supernatural. There is a bond that we share at that point because God pours his life, the spirit of his son Jesus, into your life and into my life. And he does that generously and faithfully. And it leads to a fellowship that you and I, that we can enjoy as people who, who have decided to follow Jesus, that is nothing short of miraculous. And that fellowship is what, what John is describing here, that he wants to invite people in so that their joy may be complete. And that fellowship he describes with a word called koinonia. That's the Greek word for fellowship here. And it's a really, really rich word that means much more than a church potluck or, or getting together for, to bowl together or whatever. It's much more than just, just linking our lives together and, and, and being friends with each other. It talks about having something much, much deeper in common. It talks about a, a shared vision, a shared work that we're in, a shared enjoyment of each other's joys and a shared grief of each other's griefs. In classical Greek, the word koinonia expresses the most intimate kind of human relationship outside of sexuality. 
So the most intimate personal relationships are described with this word koinonia. It also has the meaning of having things in common. It has the meaning of, of being generous as we live with each other. It's actually the word that Paul uses when he talks in Romans 15 and com uh, commends the churches for having made a contribution to the needy church in Jerusalem. The contribution they, they made, he calls koinonia. It's a natural flowing out of that community that they enjoy with each other. Out of that community flows generosity with and for each other. Talks about generous sharing. So part of the biblical concept of fellowship with each other as followers of Jesus is generosity. And fellowship with each other without generosity is not an option is not an option. And that's what we're going to dive into now in John chapter 3. Let's go into John, 1 John chapter 3 and um, let's read. I'm going to read starting in verse 11. On the screen we will, we will have verses 16 through 18. But I want to start a little, a little earlier in this passage. So if you have your Bible and I want to encourage you to bring your Bibles, um, especially here during the next six weeks as we dive into First John. So First John chapter 3, I'm going to start in verse 11, and then on the screen we'll, it will join us in verse 16. This is what he writes. This is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, my brothers, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life. Because we love our brothers. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life in him. So here comes verse 16. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. So verse 14, he clearly says here that the, the sign of spiritual life is love that works itself out in our lives. He says, if you have received spiritual life, if you have received the love of God, if you have received his forgiveness and his grace, his generosity through his son Jesus, then that has got to work itself out by actions of love in your life. And he says, if you don't love, then, then you must still be in death. He says, you can't say you share in God's nature, you have accepted him and he has poured his spirit in you and not have love. It's not an option says in verse 16, and this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. In these first verses here, he contrasts Cain, who was the first person to take life as recorded in the Bible, and then Jesus, who came to give life, to give life to you by giving up his own. Cain took his brother's life because his brother's sacrifice was accepted by God. His was not. It was a crime of, of envy and fear, and, and, um, and he took life. Jesus, contrary to that, came to lay down his life for us. He defined 
what love is and how it is expressed. And in 1 Corinthians 5, it tells us that Jesus died to set you and me free so our life doesn't have to be about ourselves anymore. To set us free to lay down our lives in the way he has. What's the greatest thing somebody could do for you today? Can you think, what could be the greatest thing? Spiritual matters aside, just materialistically in this life, physically, what would be the greatest thing that somebody could do for you today? Something that would take the, the greatest burden off you. Would it be maybe a, a, a disease, take, take away a disease that's, that burdens you heavy? I know, I know a lot of us are, are under big financial burdens of, of debt. Would that be it if somebody, if somebody would just write that check and it would all take it all away? What, what would it be for you? I'm, I'm, I'm not in a super desperate place. For me, the biggest thing over me is probably the, the mortgage on my house. So, dude, if somebody came tomorrow and wrote me that check, can you, I mean, can you imagine somebody doing that for you tomorrow? And the, the burden that would lift it, lift, be lifted off you and what it would set you free to do? Can't you just feel the, just the freedom that that could bring? See, and that's a material issue in, in this life. Now, how does that stand up in comparison to Jesus giving the most precious thing any of us have, our lives, giving that up for the deepest need that you and I will ever have, deeper than any material or physical need, which is the spiritual need of a, of a connection back with God, our creator. And Jesus gave up everything so that you and I can receive that. Now what should that, what does that set us free to do? Have we really received that love? Have we received the generosity of that love? And, and are we actually living in that? Have we received it in a way where it reciprocates itself in our lives to the people around us? It says that just like Jesus, we ought to lay down our lives for each other. That's because, that's because of what we have been, been blessed to receive from him. And it's because of who we are in fellowship with. It's the result of our fellowship with the Father and with Jesus where he has poured his generosity and his love that gave everything into you and me to enable us and set us free to do that. In, in chapter 1, verse 6, we didn't read it earlier, but it says, whoever claims to live in him, in God, must walk as Jesus did. It says, if you claim that you live with him, if you claim to be a follower of Jesus, then you must walk like Jesus did. And that must is not so much in a, you have to do this or this and this and this. It's more in the sense, if you're really following Jesus, you, you must in the sense of you can't help but walk like him. You can't help but lay down your life for others and, and love and reciprocate the love that you have received from him. In verse 14, he says, We know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers. Anyone who does not love remains in death. He says, The love that you and I live out is the evidence of the life that you and I have received from Jesus. And the essence of love is always self-sacrifice. 
Love seeks the other person's good and leads to activity in that direction. So we need, what we need is a revolution in our hearts. What we need is to truly receive the love that God has for you and for me that is limitless and faithful and abundantly generous. He pours that into your heart and mine. It's got to overflow. It's got to overflow into the lives around us. And that leads us to the second point that John is making here, and we've called that a revolution with our possessions. He goes on to say here, and this is where it gets really hard. He says, if anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? I'm going to tell you, for me, this is where it gets really hard. This is where, where it really hits my life. And let me, let me tell you, before we move on, this, I just want to tell you that I am in absolutely no position to tell you I have, I have the answer to how that needs to exactly look in my life. As I studied this and dove into this, this these last couple of weeks, I found myself unbelievably deeply challenged by this. Deeply challenged to ask some really, really tough questions. And I just want to invite you in this morning to, to ask those tough questions with me and to allow those questions and to really allow God to speak answers into our hearts of what that really means and what that should look like in our lives. Now, let me say this. When he talks about anyone having material possessions, sometimes we look at this and say, okay, he's talking about people who have material possessions who have abundantly and luxuriously, who make six-figure incomes and, and have abundantly more than most other people. Those people should see need and do something about it. That's often how we look at this. And that's not what he's saying. Material possessions, the word used here is talking about essentials for daily life, essentials to sustain life. Let me just tell you, I have the essentials to sustain life. And I know we have really needy people around us in this faith community called K2 The Church. But I would, I would take a step of faith and say that probably 95% of us here have more than we need. Let me just tell you, I have more than I need. And you know what? I, I, I listened to a message by John uh, uh, Stanley Andy Stanley in, in Atlanta, a large church, and he, he talked about this issue recently. And he, he had his congregation. He says, if you are here today and honestly can't say that, don't say it. But let's say it together. Sometimes it's good to say it out loud and remind ourselves, I have more than I need. If you have more than you need, say it with me. I have more than I need. I do. And I know most of us have more than we need. What he's saying here is, if you have what you need to sustain your life, and you see somebody who doesn't, you do something about it. You have pity and compassion. If you do not, how can the love of God possibly be in you if you are unmoved by people who don't have the essentials and you do? And most of us do. Most of us have more than we need. And a lot of us who feel like we don't, and sometimes we do, sometimes I don't, I feel like I don't have all I need. You know when I feel I don't have all I need? It's because when I have so bought in into the American way of life where the bar is so high of what I need and, and this is what I really need, 
when it's not really what, what I need. It's more what I want and what, what my, my society tells me I need. What do we really need? And this is where I was really deeply, deeply challenged. And I just want to share my thoughts with you, and I don't want to inflect those on you, but this is where my heart, okay, what do I really need? I, I, do I really need an iPhone? No, I love having it. Do I really need to drive a Mustang? Do I need to go on a week vacation with my family? So this is where this took me, and it, it got really painful. Not that any of those are bad and necessarily wrong. It's just, I just start thinking, okay, now what? Where is that line? And, and you say, I don't think there is a line. For, for I can't draw a line for you. What I can do is I can say, God, search my heart. Search my heart and show me where have I gone outside of your, where have I lost track of your heart for the people around me? Where have I stopped having pity? Where has my comfort and my satisfaction become more important than your heart and compassion for people around me? And the word that he, that he uses here for pity literally means shutting the door of your heart. When have you or I begun to shut the door of our heart towards the people around us in need? And then my thoughts were, to, okay, now wow, there is so much need out there. How can I possibly be moved to action with every need. I see, I mean, every other street corner, there is somebody with a need. I'm surrounded by people with needs. So where, where do we start? Unfortunately, I and a lot of us sometimes then go to, well, I can't meet all this. I'm just going to shut down. See, none of us can do something about everything. But all of us can do something about one thing. Right? And we all have more than we need. Most of us have more when we need. So what God, I think, is really saying here is if you have no pity and you say you follow me, if this doesn't move you at all, he says, if you claim to have fellowship with me, if you claim that I have put my spirit into your heart and you don't have compassion for those around you in need, something's not right. I think he's actually saying if you say you love me but you don't have pity on the needy around me, you might actually not really Love me. This gets really harsh, and it sounds really judgmental. But what he's saying is, if your claim to follow me doesn't show itself in your actions and compassion for the needy, you're not actually following me. You don't actually love me. And that sounds harsh, doesn't it? It sounds really judgmental. And so I got thinking, okay, if you guys were to closely observe my relationship with my wife, and I love her, and I tell her, I will tell you I love my wife. So let's say you observe, you want to see, well, Christian, how do you love your wife? And you observe my interaction with her, where I just can't give, give a rip about what she really cares about, where I don't really care about what her heart longs for, what her passions are, and the things that she would love to pursue, and, and where her heart, where, I'm, where I don't show no interest in the things she's passionate about. All I pursue is what, what my comfort is and what I enjoy, and I'm okay as long as she tags along with my pursuits, but I don't give a rip about what she really cares about. You would say, you love her? Are you kidding me, Christian? You say you love your wife and you, you don't give a, a rip about what, what her heart really cares about? And you would be right in confronting me with that. See, that is what God is saying here. Is if you say you love me, 
but you don't care at all about my heart for the people in need, then how can you really love me? So what this verse did to me in these, in these last few days is just really, really digging in and say, God, okay, where, where am I missing it? Where am I saying I love you, but my actions show I love me? And where, where do you want to start here? <laughs> where do you want to begin with me? Where can I start building some margin in my life where I can be set free to follow you, where you ask me to put my love for you into action? One thing that's important to note here is pity on others in need doesn't lead to salvation. It doesn't lead to God saying, okay, now you're good enough. That's not the point. But our pity, our compassion for people should be uh, the evidence of the salvation and the love that we have received from God. So have we really received? Have you, have I really received the love of God? Do we really have fellowship with him? Will we continue to allow him to sharpen our heart, to, 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 to bring our heart in sync with his heart, where we care about the things he cares about? And again, let me just say again, this is not judgment from me on you. This is me sharing my struggle with you and me wanting to struggle through this with you. We're all on a journey. We're all on a journey to, to sink our hearts more and more with him. And that's, that's what, what we're trying to do. You know, sometimes we look at the unmet needs around I just, I just read Steve Jobs. I'm in the process of reading Steve Jobs' biography, and he describes how he lost faith in God. When he was 13, his parents had taken him to a Lutheran church all his life. When he was 13, he saw a Time magazine cover with starving children in Africa. And he took that to his Sunday school teacher as a 13-year-old, and he said, what's God doing about this? And the pastor said, well, you don't understand, Steve. And he said, okay, enough, I'm leaving. God doesn't care. See, we, we see unmet needs and we blame God for not meeting that need. We say, God, where are you? You know what I think God is saying? He says, well, where are you? What Steve should have asked, Steve Jobs should have asked is, what are you, pastor, doing about this? See, God has compassion for the people in need and, and, and he, his plan is for you and me to live out his love and his compassion and do something about it. So seeing unmet needs shouldn't lead to disillusionment with God. It should lead to disillusionment with each other because we're not following God's plan to meet the needs of the world. We need a revolution with our possessions. We need God's love to revolutionize the way we think about what he's provided for us. And he needs to, we, we need his love to revolutionize the way we look at the people around us in need and I need that as bad or badlier than any of you but there's a third revolution that we need because it's not good enough to end with pity it's not good enough to end with compassion see pity and compassion could go oh you're in need God bless you let me pray for you and move on. That, that, I can be moved with compassion and say, I'll, I'll pray for you and not do anything about it. And that is not acceptable according to God's word. Now, this compassion and praying for people is great. 
But again, if you have material possessions, not talking about abundance and above and beyond and, and six, seven-figure incomes, it's talking about, do you have what you need for life? And somebody doesn't? Do something about it. So thirdly, we need a revolution in our actions. He goes on to say in, chapter, in verse 18, Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. Let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. Having pity and compassion cannot be the end. We've got to do something about it. Profession without action is nothing. In James, in the letter of James, we read that faith without works is dead. It goes down that same line. We can't claim to have faith and fellowship with God if it doesn't lead to actions as the evidence of that. So the next step has got to be actions, actions of faith, actions that often don't make sense because love with no actions is nothing more than religious talk. One of the ladies on the mission trip to Ethiopia, fairly new believer, single mom, she felt clearly called to go on this mission. She said, and it's so cool to hear somebody who's so young in Jesus, she said, man, The Holy Spirit spoke so clearly. I mean, she just said she knew she heard the voice of God saying, you are going on this trip to Ethiopia. She knew she didn't have the resources and she didn't have people to reach out to to raise that money. She felt so convicted to go that she gave up the apartment she was living in to move back in with her mother to free up the resources and be generous enough to be able to go and serve the needy in Ethiopia. Now, that does not sound like safe financial or relational advice. Let me just tell you, I wouldn't want to move in with my mother at this point. I hope she doesn't listen to this podcast. Sorry, Mom. That doesn't sound like great advice to give to somebody. But you know what it sounds like to me? It sounds like faith in action. Faith and love in action that's willing to sacrifice comfort and reputation for the sake of what God called her to do. And she's now experiencing God using her as a result and, and her putting that love into action to needy in Ethiopia. That's what it looked like for her. I'm wrestling through what this looks like for me. And I just want to invite you to wrestle through what does this look like for you? What is action steps that, that you can take? And I'm already over time, so I'm going to... I'm going to give you just some, some action steps that we can take towards, towards putting this love in action, towards generosity within the koinonia, the fellowship that we enjoy out of the fellowship that we enjoy with God. I think the first step before we do anything is to look and appreciate what God has already given you. To look and appreciate and list the things that God has blessed you with. And even if you feel needy right now, you might... Do that exercise and realize, man, I have so much more to be thankful for than I have a need for. And just, just focus on what God has blessed you with and say thank you. Because when we look at what he's blessed us with and we say thank you, we turn our eyes from our perceived needs to what God has already done. And I will guarantee you it will fill your heart with thankfulness and with content and it will begin to set you free to be generous with what he's already given you. So start with that. Look at what he's given and thank him for that. And then look at all of that and in your mind just release your grip on it and say, Jesus, I claim to follow you. 
And claiming to follow you means that you lead. It means that you are Lord over everything you've given me, not just two, five, eight, ten percent of it. All of what you've provided is yours. And you've given it to me to distribute and to use. And then, and then say, okay, God, what do you want to do with this? What do you want to bless others with? What, what do you want to continue to bless me with? And just submit it to his lordship. And then let's live that koinonia. Let's, let's live this kind of fellowship, that supernatural connection that we have through the spirit that lives in you and that lives in me if you follow Jesus. The spirit of, of, of community, of self-sacrifice, and of generosity that he has poured into your heart and mine. That he wants to give us the strength to live out with each other. And he has placed you in this faith community. So that kind of koinonia and sharing and generosity should begin here. And the scripture is very clear about that. If we can't live this koinonia, this fellowship with each other, where we have the same spirit living inside of us, how could we possibly expect to live it outside of here? So let's begin that here. By the way, that's one of the reasons why we take an offering on Sundays. It's not primarily to make K2 work and pay the bills. It's because we want to give people an opportunity to put the generosity that Jesus has already poured in your hearts into action as an expression of trust and faith. Say, God, this is all yours. What do you want to do with it? And then it enables us as a community to be generous with each other where we can help meet each other's needs, where we can help meet the needs of this community, whether it's the, the Dream Center, whether it's holding out help or other areas of need. Allow God, allow Jesus to lead you in how to live that koinonia, that community, that fellowship, that love, that generosity here in this community that he's placed you in. And then, again, take this. And really take a good look at this. And I don't want to, I do not want to pat me and my family on the back. But one thing we did this week with our kids, and we looked at Kobe's stuff. We looked at Christmas in light of this. Kobe, our little four-year-old, we were like, Kobe, do you really need a third fire truck engine? And, and the, our other kids, Clara, Casey, Kenny, we were like, what do you really need? This Christmas. Is there something that you have a deep need for? And, and we looked at stuff, and it's not like we, we live crazy abundant, but there really, there really wasn't anything they, they said we, we need. So sit down, sit down with your family and, and look at what can we do to bless others this Christmas. And I guarantee you, nothing will bless Jesus more in the memory of his birth than us blessing those who really are in need rather than giving each other things that we really don't need anymore. Let's just bring that before God and say, God, what do you want to do? How do you want to use me in what I was planning to spend anyway? How do you want me to use that maybe in a way that, that honors you, honors you more? Just bring that before God. And then lastly, and I'll close with this, I know that there is a good number of people here who, who literally feel like I don't have that room to be generous like that. I, my needs aren't met. And I just want to encourage you to, to start working on creating a margin in your life. Allow God to lead you in creating a margin in your life that will allow you to be generous with needs as you encounter them. Some of us are in need or we are in a place where we can't be generous because, because we've so been trapped by the, by the expectations of lifestyle in this world where we have put ourselves in a position where there's no more margin to do anything else. 
And let's just start looking at where does God want to lead you to, to, to cut and to really to create a margin to be generous with. And here's why. Because Paul, John writes in the end of, of the first three verses of chapter 1, he says all this. He wants us to enjoy this koinonia, this fellowship and generosity, so that our joy may be complete. And when I hear that, I think back to my friend's giddiness about being so generous with me. That's the joy, the complete joy that I want all of us to experience as we fellowship with Jesus and with each other, where our joy is made complete. I want to ask the worship team to come up. We're going to sing one song as a response to what we heard. And I just want to invite you and caution you. The words are, I will follow you. It's a proclamation. It's say, Jesus, I will follow you wherever you will lead. I will go where you say go. I will stop where you say stop. I will go. So as we sing this, just sing it if you mean it. Sing it if you mean it, that you will follow where he will lead specifically in this area of generosity. Let me pray. Oh, this is so hard. Because our stuff and our things and our resources are so dear to us. And we so buy into the American dream and the pursuit of happiness where your kingdom is so upside down that where you say real happiness and joy comes from not being about you but allowing us to really be filled with your spirit of love and grace and generosity that you want us to distribute and overflow out of our lives into the lives of those around us. So Father, I just pray that you would just take each one of us on this journey, that you would convict us where conviction is needed, that you would lead us to release where that's needed, and that you would give us the strength to follow you would lead us into your joy. In Jesus' name, amen.